Good evening and welcome again. We're glad that you're here tonight, especially since it is such a warm evening. Appreciate everybody being out. It's too cold for me, I can promise you that. I told somebody the other day, I was thinking about taking my ministry coastal. Anything below 80 is cold to me. But we're glad that you're here tonight. We're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to look just very briefly at chapter 18. Before we do that, I do want to take this opportunity to welcome again those of you that are visiting. We're always glad that you're with us. We're thankful for the number of visitors that come our way from week to week. And we always want you to know that we're appreciative that you have made a stop here. And it may be that you're looking for a church home. And if that be the case, we would love to have you come and work with us here at Olive Branch. I think we have a lot of great things that are going on. Tonight I want us to think for a minute or two about the theme, Down in the Valley. To get to the heart of what we're talking about tonight really deals with discouragement. I don't know if you have ever found yourself down in the valley. If you have, take comfort because you're not alone. There have been a lot of people in days gone by that have dealt with discouragement. Many of us have been discouraged over any number of things. What I want you to see tonight is that sometimes God's people that we read about in the Bible, that they too felt discouraged. Sometimes I think we have difficulty humanizing the people that we read of in Scripture. I think it's great for us to read and study biblical characters. And one of the things that we're doing on Wednesday night in our class in the fellowship hall is talking about Bible characters. And the goal is to humanize those individuals that we read about in the Scriptures. The, the idea behind this or the concept behind it it is for everyone to realize that yes, there were spiritual giants that were spoken of in the scriptures, but they, like we, had clay feet. They had their trials, tribulations, temptations. They had their faults. Were they good people in many respects? Yes, they were. Did God use them in great ways? Yes, he did. But even though they were great in many respects, they had their troubles. What I like about reading and studying biblical characters is it inspires me. It helps me to understand that the world that we live in is not perfect. This is an imperfect world. What we're trying to do is live the best we can with the help of Almighty God and ultimately one day go to heaven. And so tonight I want us to look at one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, a man by the name of Elijah. And Elijah had what I would call a showdown on Mount Carmel. When you read chapters 18 and 19, you, you get insight into the situation and ultimately what led to the discouragement of the prophet Elijah. We begin tonight by talking about the distress of the prophet. Now, just very quickly, by way of some background information, 
In chapter 18, we read about the king, a man by the name of Ahab. And Ahab was not a good king. He was married to a wicked woman, a lady by the name of Jezebel. Together, they were not a pretty portrait. They were ungodly people. Ahab was king over Israel. He reigned for over 20 years. He allowed his wife to influence him greatly. And so in chapter 18, we find Elijah wanting a conference, so to speak, with King Ahab. And so he calls upon a man by the name of Obadiah, who, by the way, was the keeper of Ahab's house. Obadiah was a man that feared the Lord. Obadiah, of course, was fearful to set up this meeting between Ahab and Elijah. When you read the text, you'll find that the two got together. And as Ahab and Elijah came face to face, listen in verse 17 to what Ahab says. Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And then in verse 18, here's what the prophet said. I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the bells. As we think about the distress of the prophet, what we're going to see in chapter 18 is the great victory that came to pass on Mount Carmel. In verse 19, the text says, Therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel lay just north of Caesarea. The 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, that is, the Canaanite fertility goddess, those that were followers of her, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. When Elijah met the people, here's what he asked. How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. But the people answered him not a word. And so in verse 22, Elijah said to the people, I alone am left, a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. In verse 23, Elijah the prophet instructs the people to take two bulls, one for the prophets of Baal, the other for the children of Israel. The idea behind this in verse 24 is, you call on the name of your gods, I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well. Those that were followers of Baal, that is the prophets of Baal, they did as Elijah had instructed them. The only problem is their gods never responded, never answered them. And so listen to what Elijah said to those people in the long ago. Cry aloud, verse 27, for he is a God. Either he's meditating, maybe he's busy, or he's on a journey. Perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. 
In verse 28, the writer said they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed on them. And it was so when midday was passed that they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. So now Elijah steps up. He calls upon the people to draw near to him. He repairs the altar that had been, that had been broken down. He took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And the Bible says in verse 32 that with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seas of seed. He put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood and said, fill four water pots with water, pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. He did that three times. And then drop down and note if you would in verse 37. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood, the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. When the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Elijah then said, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. They seized them. Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. So you have this great victory on Mount Carmel, the victory of the prophet. But when you transition into chapter 19, you have the vexation of the prophet. What you're going to find is that just as high as Elijah got in terms of his victory, equally so he became that low. So note if you would in verses 1 and 2. First there was a threat to his life. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. And here's what she said. So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So his life is threatened. How does he respond? Well, he's in a hopeless situation in many respects. And so in verse 3, we read of his terror. The Bible says, when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life. And he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. Mount Carmel lay to the north. Beersheba was to the south, south actually, southwest of Jerusalem. And so he's on the run. But now think with me, if you would, of the discouragement of the prophet. When we look at verses 4 and following, we're introduced to the feelings of Elijah. I want to begin by talking a little bit about his misery. In verse 4, here's what the text says. He went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die. And said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life. 
I am no better than my father's. What did Elijah want? He wanted death, didn't he? He wanted to die. Have things ever been so bad in your life that you've thought death would be preferable to living? There are folks out there that have felt like that. I'm not saying that they've thought about taking their life, though some do. But there are some people, because of the circumstances of life and because of the gravity of the situation, in their mind, they're thinking, you know what? It'd be better for me if I were just dead. Go back and read Job chapter 3. When you look at Job and you begin to put into perspective everything that he lost, he lost his family, he lost his flocks, his health, the support of his wife. And so in chapter 3, he pours out his heart. And in effect, what he's saying is, you know what? It'd be better if I'd never been born. It would have been better if my mother had never given birth to me. Sometimes people feel that way. Sometimes folks, sometimes folks just wish they were dead. Those are the sentiments of Elijah the prophet. We talk about being down in the valley, the valley of discouragement. I think that there are a lot of folks in the church and many out of the church that battle discouragement. Some battle depression, and understandably so. One of the things that I would want to stress in our study tonight is the fact that one of the greatest tools the devil uses is discouragement. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer calls attention to the Old Testament saints and he instructs those New Testament Christians in the first century to run with patience or endurance the race that is set before them. He said, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But down in verse 3, in light of that exhortation, he makes a statement. He said, lest you be weary or become weary and discouraged in your souls. What that says to me is discouragement can be a problem. Even for those of us that belong to the body of Christ. I said a minute ago that sometimes when we look at Bible characters and we read about some of the great men and women of God, we have the idea that they were superhuman. That they never felt the pains and the frustrations and the trials and the tribulations that we today feel. But how wrong we are. Because they, look, they had to walk the same earth that we're walking today. They faced many adverse circumstances. And on many occasions, just like Elijah, they felt overwhelmed. So, what causes discouragement? Why do we as children of God become discouraged? We know why Elijah became discouraged. We talk about the misery of the prophet. But why do we become discouraged? I think one of the things that causes discouragement among us 
could be summed up in the words disease, illness, pain, or human suffering. There are some folks that, from a medical perspective, have constant pain. There's a lady that we read about in the book of Luke in chapter 8. And the Bible talks about how she came up and touched the garment of Jesus. What stands out in my mind about this statement is what Luke tells us. That she had been battling a blood disease, a blood disorder for 12 years. It's found in verse 43. And she had sought out many physicians. And Luke said she had spent all of her money and no one was able to cure her or heal her. Look, when you've been battling a debilitating illness or disease over an extended period of time, and rather than getting better, you continue to grow worse and worse, what happens? You get discouraged. Why? Because you're a human being. All of us find ourselves from time to time down in the valley. We want to think that we're going to get better. But sometimes we don't get better. There was a lady many years ago, a friend of mine and I used to visit every week. And she had chronic pain and the doctors could not isolate the root of her problem. But she had a lot of pain. She eventually passed away. But she was racked, I mean literally racked with pain. When you can't get out, and do what in days gone by you had been able to do. When you can't do what you want to do, you can't go to the grocery, you can't go to the department store, you can't work, you can't go to worship, it can become very discouraging. There's a second thing that I believe causes discouragement. Difficulties at home. Jesus said on one occasion, a house divided against itself cannot stand. There are a lot of homes all across our nation and some in the church that have major, major problems. I've said before and I believe it to be the case that the root of the problem in our country is tied to the home. A lot of homes under duress. When husbands and wives do not get along with one another, when they are constantly bickering and fighting and there is turmoil in that setting, it's going to be discouraging. When husbands and wives terminate their marriage in spite of what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 6, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. It'll be discouraging. When children are not reared in the Lord. When they're, not, when they're not taught at an early age to be obedient, to honor their mamas and daddies, problems come and it can be discouraging. There are folks that have teenagers that have no idea what to do because they're, they're, they're children have gone wild. They're living in rebellion. And mamas and daddies don't know how to control them. 
Sometimes they know how to control them. The problem is they just don't control them. But needless to say, when you have problems at home, you've got some real problems. And those problems can lead to discouragement. A third source of discouragement is death. I have not kept up with how many people we have lost at Olive Branch over the past year. But in my mind, this has probably been, well, I haven't seen a year like this in at least 20 years when one congregation has been affected by so many deaths. Read John chapter 11. When Jesus said to the disciples, Lazarus is dead. Sobering words. Look at Mary and Martha. When they come to Jesus and say, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Go with Jesus. As he stands in the presence of those who were mourning and watch him as he too weeps, as John records. Death can be a devastating blow. And there are no quick fixes when it comes to death and the separation that occurs. I wish I had the ability to mend the hearts that have been broken by those who have lost loved ones. I can grieve with them. I can pray with them and I can pray for them. But only time in the Lord. And sometimes when it is a close, close family member, there is a part of us that dies with that person. And I can't promise that I, I can't promise those who have lost somebody extremely close to them that they'll ever be whole again. Can't make that promise. There's just a part, there's just a part of us that dies with physical loss. But we go on. And with the help and grace of God, we make it day by day. And then I think about disappointment. Some are discouraged because they have been disappointed in life. Disappointed over a brother or sister in Christ that now is no longer faithful. When you read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, when Paul said, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. I want to ask you a question. You ever thought about what that did to Paul? We read that, we read that statement. And we think about, here's somebody that defected, that went back into the world, and the tragedy of that, it was tragic for Demas. But what about Paul? When Paul wrote to Philemon in Philemon verse 24, he identified Demas as a fellow laborer. 
Here's somebody that works shoulder to shoulder, side by side, maybe day in and day out for an extended period of time. He is a co-laborer in the kingdom, and now he's not faithful. That can be discouraging. It's discouraging to me when I know people that ought to know better, but for whatever reason, they're not living like they ought. They're just not faith. Their heart's just not in it. My prayer, my plea would be that they, like the prodigal son, will come to themselves. And then in verse 16 of 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul said, at my first defense, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. You ever, you ever been faced with a series of circumstances that are not favorable? And during the course of those circumstances, you thought there would be people that would stand behind you and support you. But for whatever reason, they didn't. You ever been there? That's where Paul was. Here is Paul, and he's saying, nobody stood with me. Not a soul. Not one person. And yet, Solomon talks about the value of friendship. Bear in mind, you would have thought there would have been brothers and sisters in Christ that would have stood behind Paul, but they didn't do it. Sometimes folks will assure us they'll be with us every step of the way, but when push comes to shove, guess what happens? They're gone. Gone. But here's what Paul said. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. And then a final thing that comes to mind is disgust. Disgust over the state of the country in which we live. It can be discouraging to turn on the news. If you watch the local news, or the national news for that matter, it can be disheartening. Because it is as if we as a nation of people are on a downhill slide. And yet Solomon said, righteousness exalteth the nation, but sin is a reproach unto any people. To know that our nation, morally speaking, has made cataclysmic changes. My fervent prayer, your fervent prayer, would be that our nation would see the importance of following the word of God, the gospel. Because the gospel is the answer to the moral ills of our nation. What about the mistake of Elijah? We think about the misery of the prophet, but what about the mistake of the prophet? Drop down in verse, look at verse 9 if you would. The text says that Elijah went into a cave and spent the night in that place, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. 
And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I think one of the mistakes that Elijah made on this occasion is he isolated himself. When troubles come, discouragement, there are times when we need the presence of other people. There's a passage in the Psalms, in Psalm 102, where the psalmist said that he was alone like a sparrow on a housetop. I'm not sure if there's anything worse than feeling alone. And that's how Elijah felt. And he's going to express that in just a minute. He's going to use the expression, I alone. He's out there by himself. Which leads me to the third thing. The miscalculation of the prophet. Note verse 10. Here's what he said. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. Now listen to him. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. We're going to talk in just a minute about this miscalculation. Pick up with me in verse 10 as we think about the disclosure to the prophet. We're going to begin in, or we're going to come back to verse 10 in just a minute. But as you think about the disclosure to the prophet, in light of his distress and his discouragement, there are three things that stand out. Number one... There was a command given. Note if you would what is said by Almighty God. Now in verse 14, Elijah reiterates the fact that he is, he is all alone. But here's what the Lord said. Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazel as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. So first of all, he is instructed to anoint two individuals as kings. And then also he is instructed to anoint Elisha as his successor. Listen to what he says in verse 16. Elisha, the son of Shaphat, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. In the latter part of the chapter you're going to read where Elisha arose and followed Elijah and served him. Here's one thing I want to point out very quickly. Here is Elijah. He's down in the dumps. He's discouraged. And what does God do? God says, get busy. Sometimes we get down in the valley in the valley of discouragement, and we, continued, and we continue to go down, 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 and we have what sometimes is called a pity party, when what we need to do is get busy. You know why? Because when you get busy, you get your mind off of your problems. So God gives Elijah something to do. He gives him a command, a commission. And then, a word of comfort. 
Now, listen again to what Elijah said. I mentioned a moment ago his miscalculation. He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenants, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Now listen to what God said in verse 18. I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not, bell, have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah missed it by a mile, didn't he? We talk about sometimes forecasting. Sometimes politically speaking, two individuals will be running for office. And forecasters will try to determine the percentage points that each candidate will receive. Here's Elijah and he's saying, look, I'm all alone. I'm out here by myself. And God said, wait a minute. I still have 7,000 people that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. How many times do we feel like it's all that, that we alone are fighting this fight? That we're all alone. Nobody else is out there. Look around. Look around in the church. And look at young folks and older folks. And black folks and white folks and rich folks and poor folks. And guess what? We're all in this thing together. We all have our highs and we all have our lows. We have our good times and our bad times. We have our joys. We have our frustrations. Why? Because it's life. And we get down in the valley. And what we need to do is get out of that valley. Elijah had been on top of the mountain. Everything was going great. The next thing you know, he's down in that valley. Life can be cyclical. You have highs, you have lows. When you have highs and when you have lows, you need to try to keep perspective on things and realize that things are not always as good as they may seem and they're not always as bad as they may seem. What's the old saying? Steady as she goes. Just take it one day at a time. Elijah was discouraged. But God, at least in my mind, provided words of comfort. He said, Elijah, you're not alone. I've got a lot of folks out there battling for what's right. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we're so thankful for the privilege and the power of prayer. We're grateful for the opportunity to come before your throne, to acknowledge our weaknesses, our shortcomings, our failures, our discouragements. And we understand that life is not easy. And we're thankful for your presence day in and day out. The privilege of prayer and the power of prayer in our lives for the many prayers that have been answered. And Father, when we get down in the valley, help us. Help us to get busy. Help us to realize that you're there for us and to find encouragement in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to come to Christ.
to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that based on that belief, you would be willing to obey the gospel. Here's what you need to do. Repent of your sins. Confess the name of Christ and be immersed in a watery grave of baptism. As Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, when you do that, you'll enjoy the forgiveness of your sins. You'll be added to the church and you'll enjoy, you'll enjoy all spiritual blessings. And the Bible says that, that if you're faithful till death, you'll have a home in heaven. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful, could we encourage you to come home? Could we pray with you and for you tonight as we stand and sing?